Lord, we just want to humble ourselves before you and just take a moment to quiet our hearts. Would you remove anything that would be a distraction from us hearing you speak today? Lord, please forgive our sins. We confess to you, Lord, that we have not been wholly devoted in our hearts to you. Lord, that we have not loved you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask for your grace to forgive and cleanse us. And Lord, we ask for the power of your Spirit to come and to minister through the Word of God. We know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So make it powerful today, Lord. Help us to see Jesus, and we pray that we might learn from our Master. Lord, we are His disciples. We are His learners, His followers, and help us to follow and learn from our Master today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we all know that it's our duty to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. We know that it's part of the Christian life to share that faith and that truth with other people. But the problem often comes in when we try to figure out how to do that. How are we to relate our faith? How are we to be witnesses for Christ? Maybe to reverse the question is, how are we not to be witnesses for Christ? And today I want to look with you at the Master, Jesus Christ, to see his attitude and his perspective towards lost people. Because as the master goes, so should his followers go, right? If the master had a certain perspective on lost people, you, we would assume that he would like his disciples to have the same perspective towards them. So we're going to look at Jesus and how he viewed and saw lost people, his perspective and his attitude towards them, in hopes that that will help us become better witnesses for Jesus ourselves. And so what we're going to be looking at, first of all, is the call of Levi. Another name for Levi is Matthew. And then we're going to be looking at the correcting of the leaders. So we'll work our way through the text, verses 27 to 32. But then we're going to look at four ineffective ways to reach the lost, and then one effective way to reach the lost. So let's take a look at the text. And first of all, the calling of Levi. Verse 27, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, we will never really be able to understand this situation until we understand how Orthodox Jews viewed tax collectors in the first century. A tax collector was a Jew who would collect taxes from his countrymen, his Jewish brothers, and he would give it to who? The Romans. Who were the Romans? They're the enemy, they were the oppressors, and they were Gentiles. Jews didn't have anything to do with Gentiles. They didn't associate with Gentiles. They didn't like Gentiles. They thought they were superior to Gentiles. And here's one of their own, a Jew, Matthew, who decided that he was going to go and work for the Gentiles, take money from his own people, and give it to the enemy. Now, how do you suppose the Jews felt about Matthew? They didn't like him much. They regarded him as a traitor, a turncoat. In fact, tax collectors were very deceptive and shady people. Do you remember when 
The tax collector said to John the Baptist, when John said, you need to bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, they said, well, what shall we do? You remember John's answer? He says, collect no more than you were authorized to do. Well, what does that tell you? They were always collecting more than they were authorized to collect. They were cheats. They'd figure out a way to manipulate the system so that they could extort more money from the people than they actually owed. And they took all that extra money and just slid it into their pockets and got richer and richer and richer. In fact, when you get to Luke 19, there's another tax collector named Zacchaeus. And the Bible says he was rich. Tax collectors were wealthy people. They were traitors. They were cheats. They were liars. They were cunning. In fact, the Jews regarded them as lowlifes and scum. You would put them on a par with prostitutes. You would have nothing to do with them. You wouldn't associate with them. You wouldn't invite them over to your house. You wouldn't even talk to them. If they invited you to their house, you wouldn't go. You wouldn't go on a trip with them. You completely excluded them from your life. In fact, they were the untouchables. They were like lepers in the first century. Social untouchables. They were despised and they were outcasts. And the shocking thing is that Jesus walks intentionally up to a tax booth, looks in the eyes of a tax collector, and he talks to him. That's the first shocking thing. And then he commands him and he calls him to come follow him. So he's not just talking to him, but he's calling him into the inner circle of those people that he would be associated with for three years, the 12. Now, to a Pharisee watching this, they would be appalled. They'd be shocked and appalled that Jesus would do something like this. It was unthinkable that a religious man, a rabbi, a master teacher would go up and associate with a tax collector. And that's not all. Pretty soon, he's going to be associating with a lot more than just one. A whole party full of them. So he's defying all of the Jewish religious conventions and rules that had been sort of passed down from generation to generation. Now, look at verse 28. It says, And leaving everything, he arose and followed him. The first question that comes to my mind is, I wonder if Matthew had ever met Jesus before this. Or is this the very first time he walks up to him, looks him in the eyeball, and says, follow me? I don't know. I have a hunch he probably had heard of Jesus before this time. Remember, Jesus is extremely popular by this time. Massive amounts of crowds are following him. In fact, he has to get into a boat and put away from the shore a little bit to teach them because people are walking on top of each other. The crowds are immense. So he's extremely popular. In all likelihood, Matthew had heard about him. Maybe he'd even seen some of Jesus' miracles. Maybe he was there in the incident just previous to this one where Jesus healed the paralytic. I wonder if he was actually one that heard the words, Man, your sins are forgiven you. You suppose Matthew had sort of been eaten away by guilt? He knows that he's sinning day after day after day. He's cheating people. He's lying to people. He's becoming rich unjustly and unethically and his conscience must have been just eating away at him day after day he's guilty in the sight of God and man I wonder and I wonder if and when he heard the words my son your sins are forgiven you that he, he there's a longing in Matthew's heart I want forgiveness 
He knew that Jesus was promising eternal life. He knew that Jesus was inviting people into his kingdom. He knew that Jesus was extending forgiveness. And these are the kinds of things that were becoming important to Matthew. He was longing for these things. And so Jesus comes up to him, looks him in the eye and says, come, follow me. And he leaves everything and he follows him. So what does he leave? Well, he left his tax booth behind. He left the means for him to become a very rich man. Now, Jesus said the same thing to Peter and James and John and Andrew. He said to them, come follow me. And they left everything and followed him. They left their nets, their boats. But there's a difference between a tax collector leaving his tax booth and a fisherman leaving his boats and nets. You see, a fisherman can always go back to fishing. In fact, they do. In John chapter 21, they go back to fishing later on. But once you leave your occupation as a tax collector, you can never go back because the Romans would never trust you again. So he's leaving this chance to become, in our, the way we would call this person probably a, a rich dude, a millionaire today, very wealthy guy. He's leaving all of that and he's following Jesus. And we know that Matthew had some money because he, he has this great feast in his house and it says a large crowd of people came to his home. You've got to have a pretty big house to have a large crowd of people fit into that house, right? So he's wealthy enough to have a big house. But he's turning his back on all of that and he's going to follow Jesus. But you know, I don't think that Matthew minded. I don't think that he was, oh, I don't know if I should do it or not. Boy, I wonder if the benefits outweigh the negatives. I don't think that's what it is. I, I think it was like the parable Jesus told about the man who is walking through a field and he stumbles upon something. He looks down and he, there's a treasure hidden down here. And he starts to dig around with his fingers and it's a buried treasure chest. And he opens it up and it's filled with jewels and rubies and diamonds and gold. And he covers it back up and he goes to the owner and says, hey, I'd like to buy that field. And the owner says, well, you... you you can't, it's for sale, but it's going to cost an awful lot. Well, how much? It's going to cost everything you've got. No problem. <laughs> because everything I've got isn't anything compared to this treasure. So he, he sells everything he has. He gives it to this person. He has the field now where the treasure is. And Matthew looked at Jesus as that inestimable treasure. Someone so valuable and so worthy that nothing that he had was worth holding on to if he could just have Christ. So he was converted. He followed Jesus. He found life. He found forgiveness. He entered the kingdom that day. So Levi is called. Now, let's look at the correcting of the leaders. Verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others. Matthew and Mark say tax collectors and sinners reclining at table with them. So he throws a party. He has a big feast. Why do you suppose Matthew throws this huge party and invites all his friends over? Any, any guesses? What's he trying to accomplish? Impress them? Impress his friends? I don't think it was quite to impress them, but you're on to something. Yeah, he wants them to know Jesus. He had found one so valuable to him, and he, lo he, he loved his friends. 
that he wanted them to have the joy of what he had found. And so he says, hey, you and you and you, I'm throwing a party, come on over, I want you to meet this guy. I've given up my tax business and I've become a follower of this rabbi. You've got to meet him, he's amazing. And now, who are the kind of folks that he invites over that day? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Now, why would he invite those kind of people over? That's the only kind of people he knew. If, if you were a tax collector in those days, those were the only friends you had because you couldn't associate with anybody else. So who do you know? Some prostitutes, some other tax collectors, some other shady folks. Those are the only associates you've got. So all the people you know, Matthew invites them all over to his house, throws this great big party, and Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up at that party. Interesting. Because a Pharisee or a scribe would never show up at a party filled with these tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Isn't it interesting that the very best witnesses are brand new converts? Find someone who's just saved and they'll be the best evangelist in your church. Because they're the ones that have the friends that aren't saved. The longer you become a Christian, the less non-Christian friends you've got. It's just a proven fact. If you've been saved 10 years, you probably don't have any friends that are not Christians, which is a very sad commentary that we don't put enough effort into really maintaining non-Christian friendships. But that's kind of the way it goes. Someone gets saved, they come into the church, and they start bringing all their friends with them because they want them to find what they found. Now look at verse 30. I want you to see how these scribes and these Pharisees reacted. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're grumbling. They're appalled. They're horrified. How can you even claim to be a man of God or a religious person when you're associating with these scumbags, these lowlifes? How can you do this? Uh, the word Pharisee means separated one. So the Pharisees prided themselves on the fact that they were separate from the people like that that were so sinful. They wouldn't get near them with a 10-foot pole. They, they loved the fact. They took pride in the fact that they were different and separate from them. And here Jesus is just doing the opposite of what a Pharisee would do. It's my hunch that Jesus enjoyed going to that party that day. That he, he enjoyed himself. I'm sure that he... He laughed with them. He talked with them. Maybe they even joked around at this party. They ate some good food. They drank together. Jesus listened to them. And what's more interesting to me is that these people seem to like Jesus. Now, they didn't like scribes and Pharisees because scribes and Pharisees would just condemn them. That's all they would do. They weren't interested in them as people. They didn't love them as people. They had no mercy for them or no compassion on them. But Jesus did. And when he was around, they loved it. We'll get to that later. There's other scriptures I want to show you about how the common person viewed Jesus Christ. So here Jesus shows up. And he starts eating a meal with them. And that's the thing that these scribes and Pharisees were so horrified by. He's actually eating with them. And the reason this was so crazy is that to eat with another person in the first century was kind of a personal, intimate affair. They would have one big pot, and they would have bread, and they would dip 
their bread inside the pot and eat it. Kind of like chips and salsa, right? Everyone's dipping their, their chips in the dip. That's how they would eat. They didn't use forks and plates and um, they didn't use spoons or anything else. They just used their hands. And so it was a very intimate affair. It's kind of like passing a, a beer bottle around the, the circle or something. Everyone takes a swig. It's, it was a very intimate and personal affair. And, Je and they're horrified that Jesus would sit down and actually eat with these guys. These scumbags. <laughs> How could you do that? And you think that you're a prophet? Now, Jesus wants to explain to them the reason for all of this. And he does so starting in verse 31. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now this is a little analogy that Jesus is giving here. Jesus is saying, I'm a doctor. I'm a physician. I'm a physician of souls. Those outcasts that you see right there, those prostitutes and those tax collectors, they're sick. And I'm a doctor. Now you may think you're well, you righteous scribes and Pharisees, you're not really. But in your own estimation, you're well. But I'm a doctor. And where do doctors spend their time? Sick folk. Right? <laughs> they wouldn't be any good to anybody unless they were around other sick people. That's how they help society is they minister to sick people. And Jesus says, I haven't come to call righteous you scribes and Pharisees, I'm not calling you. I have come to call sinners to repentance. So Jesus is the doctor. The tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners are the sick. So scribes and the Pharisees are the righteous or the well. And Jesus is saying to them that he's come to call these sinners to repentance. You see, every doctor will give a prescription to someone who's sick, won't he? The doctor's orders, we call it. You've got to take the doctor's orders if you want to get well. Well, the medicine that Jesus prescribes is his death and resurrection. That's the gospel. That's the medicine. But there is a certain prescription. There's something that you have to do if you want to get well. If you go to the doctor and he says, okay, take these two pills, lie down, stay in bed, don't get up, just rest all day. But instead, you take the two pills, but you get up and you work all day, and you don't get any better. Well, you didn't follow the doctor's orders. So the medicine is the gospel, but the gospel has to be received in a particular way. Now, how does a person receive the, the gospel, the medicine? How does a person get better if they're sick, if they're sin sick? Jesus said they have to be called to repentance. Repentance is the way that you receive the gospel so that it makes a difference in your life. If you don't repent, the gospel will do you no good. Now what is repentance? We have an example of repentance in Matthew's life already. Jesus called him to leave everything and follow him and Matthew got up, left everything and followed Jesus. That's repentance. You turn your back on the old life and you follow Jesus and the new life that he provides. Now if you're still walking the same kind of life, you haven't repented. Repentance is to hear the call, turn around, and walk towards Jesus. You become a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. He becomes your master, your Lord, your boss, your ruler, your king, your treasure. He's the one that your eyes are riveted on from the rest of your life. And you spend the rest of your life seeking to find out what pleases him and then to do it. 
That's repentance. And so Jesus was at this party. He was eating and drinking and probably laughing and sharing with all of these people. But at the same time, he was calling them to repentance. Now, as Christians, Kelly made this remark earlier, we're ambassadors for Christ. We're the official representatives of Jesus in this earth. If someone wants to see what Jesus looks like, they ought to be able to look at the church to find out. So if Jesus had a particular attitude towards sinners, then we as his official representatives ought to also display and model that very same attitude. So we're going to be looking at Jesus and his perspective towards lost people. Now let's take a look at four wrong ways to try to bring people to salvation. Four ineffective ways of reaching lost people. Number one, do not hang out with sinners and do not call them to repentance. Don't hang out with them and don't call them to repentance. Now that's not hard for us because this is what we usually do. <laughs> we don't hang out with them. And so because we're not hanging out with them, we can't call them to repentance. We're not with them. This is the mistake that we often make as Christians. We pull back from people who are not like us because we feel uncomfortable with them. Now part of that's good because when you're saved, God puts his Holy Spirit in you and He's the Holy Spirit. He wants you to be holy. And when you're hanging out with non-Christians, they're indulging in sin. Maybe they're living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. Maybe they're looking at profanity or pornography, or they're, and they're speaking profanity, they're looking at pornography, or they're um, getting drunk or using drugs. And that's just their life because they don't know Christ. And so when you hang out with them, you just don't feel like you fit in because the Holy Spirit's inside of you. And that is good and right. But if you allow that desire to not be tainted or polluted by sin, to keep you from interacting with people that need Jesus, then you've gone too far. Because Jesus didn't do that. Don't you know Jesus was holy? Jesus didn't like sin. Jesus doesn't like being around sin. He's absolutely holy. He hates sin. But yet he was driven to be with sinners. That's why he came into the world. That's the whole purpose of the Incarnation, is for God to dwell among sinners to save them. And He sends us out into this world the very way He came into the world. So He wants us to be with sinners. We need to hang out with them and call them to repentance. It's kind of like a doctor who has all these patients, but he never visits them because, hey, they're contagious. And he doesn't want to get sick. So, I'm not going to be around those. I'll just go to the ones that aren't contagious. Well, he can't do any good, can he? He may have all the medical knowledge in the world, in his brain, but he, nobody gets healed from his practice because he, he never gets close enough to them to even diagnose the problem. So, we are doctors. Not only is Jesus a doctor, but we as his ambassadors are doctors, doctors of the soul. We are sent into this world to bring medicine to people who are sick and dying and perishing. We have the medicine. It's the gospel. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are to bring that to people. And we are to prescribe repentance as the way to receive that medicine in order to get well. Now what's the net result? If we don't hang out with sinners and don't call them to repentance. 
Well, the net result is zero impact. We don't get any worse, but they don't get any better. Nothing changes. Nothing happens at all. So that's the first ineffective way. Second, do not hang out with sinners, but do call them to repentance. Do you see the difference between the two? You call them to repentance from a distance. You make sure you don't, don't get too close, but you stand over here with your sign or your throwing tracks at them, or you, you, know, you make sure that you don't do, enter into any kind of a friendship or relationship but when the guilt gets so deep in your heart, the Holy Spirit's working on you that you should be talking to them about Christ, you blurt something out, but it doesn't come out from any kind of a relationship that you've developed. They don't know you love them. You haven't done anything to serve them. When they see you doing that, to them it, it, it looks like you're just doing some kind of a religious obligation. You are just going through the motions. So this is another mistake that we make. There's an interesting little phrase that Matthew's Gospel adds when he tells this story about Matthew and his friends. Matthew adds this, and it's a saying of Jesus, Go and learn what this means, and he's speaking here to the scribes and Pharisees. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that was put into the context of, I'm the physician, these are the sick, the sick need a doctor. You guys, you need to go and learn what this means. God wants mercy, not sacrifice. They were experts at sacrifices. They had their animal sacrifices down pat. They knew all about sin offerings and burnt offerings and libation offerings, and they would do it on the Day of Atonement and all of the different holy days and feasts. And they did it very, very religiously and devoutly. They knew all about sacrifices, and they were good at them. But they weren't good at mercy. And here were these outcasts right in their midst, and they just turned a blind eye to them. Never even noticed them. Wouldn't even wave or talk to them. They just kind of pretended they didn't exist. And so, God wants us to have mercy. What happens, what happens if we seek to kind of witness to somebody from a distance without making any effort to invest in a relationship with them. It probably turns them off. It, 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 it comes with very little power because it doesn't seem sincere. It doesn't seem like you really care about them. You just care about doing this thing, whatever it is that you feel God wants you to do. Um, at one point in Jesus' ministry, the scribes, thinking that they were insulting Jesus, said, he's the friend of sinners and tax collectors. But Jesus took that as sort of a badge of honor. He liked that title. He's the friend of sinners. Would anybody ever give you that title? They look at your life. They look how you conduct yourselves. Would they say, yeah, you know that Angela? She's a friend of sinners. Or that Judy? Yeah, she's a friend of sinners. Because you invest in them, you, you serve them, you love them, you, you look for ways to show kindness and mercy and compassion to them. There is a church in Topeka, Kansas called Westboro Baptist Church. Has anybody ever heard of this church? Okay, a couple people here have. They have a website called GodHatesFags.com. Even the title's offensive, isn't it? <laughs> 
Since 1991, they have conducted 33,000 demonstrations. I figured that that's like five per day. So they're in all parts, different people holding up signs. These are what the signs read that they hold up. God hates fags. Fags hate God. AIDS cures fags. Thank God for AIDS. Fags burn in hell. And they feel that this is their way, I suppose, of converting homosexuals. How effective do you think they're being at reaching gay, the gay people and lesbian life? They're going to they're be running away from them as fast as they can go. It's a good example of not hanging out with sinners, but calling them to repentance from a great distance. You, you fags over there, you need to repent. Well, they're not going to listen. Because no mercy has been invested. No love, no kindness, no compassion, no relationship. I think it will be... Far better for one of us, if we know someone who's in a homosexual lifestyle, to become friends with them. Find out what their real needs are. And then as they learn that we love them, start calling them to repentance. Hey, Jesus can change your life. Jesus can set you free. But do it out of a heart of love and out of relationship. I don't think Jesus was like the GodHatesFags.com folks. I don't think he would operate that way. If Jesus was alive today, he wouldn't be holding a sign, God hates you. He would be mixing among them. He'd be eating with them. He would be finding out uh, their lives and what makes them tick and what, where their sorrows are, where they're broken. And he'd start applying the gospel balm to them. He'd call them away from this deadly lifestyle, this destructive lifestyle that's just going to send them straight into perdition. He, he certainly would do that. But he would lure them and attract them by this overwhelming sense of love. I, we'll, we'll get to this in just a minute, but I love the fact that Jesus was so attractive to sinners. They weren't repulsed by him. They were drawn to him like iron filings to a magnet. Now, what's the net result of not hanging out with sinners but calling them to repentance? We're not any worse because we're still at a distance, but they're not any better. But let's look at the third ineffective way of reaching lost people. Hang out with sinners, but never call them to repentance. So maybe your situation is a little bit different. You have this great big heart, and you just love people, and you love spending time with people. And so you get together all the time with your friends that are lost. And you go out to restaurants together, you get a drink together, um, you go to the movies, you go to the games, you just hang out at their house, play with the kids. You're always together, but you never talk about Christ and you never talk about sin. So here's the other opposite danger that we can, we can be very loving and caring and interested in people, but if we never call them to repentance, we're not doing what Jesus did either. And a lot of people say, well, I don't want to call anyone to repentance because if I do that, I'm just going to turn them off and they're going to leave and I'm going to lose my influence in their life. Well, how much influence did they have in their life before? None. <laughs> they weren't having any influence because they're never calling to repentance. So we've got to figure out a way. We've got to see how Jesus did it. How did Jesus engage with sinners and still call to repentance, and they, they didn't run, but yet they were drawn to repentance, and they were drawn to Him. That, that's what we need to figure out. What's the net result if we hang out with sinners but never call to repentance? 
The lost are not any better because we never call them to repentance. And we actually become worse because since we're hanging out so much with them, very likely we're starting to follow some of their sinful ways because they're the only ones we ever hang out with. And so we start picking up on porn or profanity or drinking or whatever it is. Okay, number four. A fourth ineffective way to reach the lost. Hang out with sinners and call to repentance, but indulge in the same sins that they do. So, you stay with them, you hang out with them, you're with them, you're telling them about Jesus, you're telling them that they need to get rid of their sin, but yet your life is just like theirs. You're doing the same things they're doing. What happens when you speak about Christ, but your life is a, a contradiction to what you're saying? There's no power. There's no power in your witness anymore, is there? A holy life is essential. Jesus lived a holy life. He brought a holy life into the midst of sinners. He didn't say, oh, hey, I'll just do what you guys do while I'm here, and then I'll change and I'll go back to the way I was when I leave here. No, he was always holy, all the time. And we don't, we don't change who we are when we're with certain kinds of people. We're always in the sight of God, aren't we? And so we always seek to live a holy life, whether we're with this person or with that person, no matter who it is. So, if we hang out with sinners and call them to repentance, but indulge in sin, we will lose all power of our witness. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6. Verse 15 to 18. Paul says, What harmony has Christ with Belial? Another term for Satan. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So here he's telling them, come out from their midst and be separate. Now, I don't think that means have nothing to do with anybody who's not saved, because that would just contradict everything we've been reading this morning about Jesus. Jesus didn't live that way. It's not saying that. It means come out of their sinful midst and be separate from their sinful ways. Do not follow their practices when they go off into sin. Be different, but yet be with them. Okay? You're with them, but different. And that's what makes attractive the gospel. If your life is no better or no different than theirs, why should they be attracted to your God? Jude verse 23 says, Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now there's two things going on here. Save sinners, snatching them out of the fire. Now you have to be with a sinner in order to snatch them and out of the fire. You've got to be close. You've got to get into their life, don't you? But at the same time, you hate even the garment polluted by the flesh. In other words, you don't love the sin that they're into. It repulses you. Honestly, it does. You don't like it. But you love them enough and you love Jesus enough to go into their life, be amongst them, and seek to bring them out, to snatch them out of the fire to where they're headed. So we love the sinners that God brings into our life. 
We're not crazy about the sin. We don't like it. We're uncomfortable with it. But yet we're willing to... It's like a, a fireman risking going into a burning house. He doesn't like fire. And he doesn't like being in the midst of fire. But he's willing to go in there because there's a soul in that fire that needs to be saved. That's what it's like to be a Christian. So those are four ineffective ways. Is there any effective way at reaching lost people? Well, how did Jesus reach lost people? He hung out with sinners... He called them to repentance, and he lived a holy life. That's how he did it. And that's how he wants us to do it. Actually, it's so simple. You wonder, how could, how could we miss it? <laughs> how could we spend our life doing all the wrong ways when the, the right way is so easy and so simple? Listen to the words of Scripture, Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. So rather than repulsing the tax collectors and sinners like the Pharisees did, they were all coming near him. They were drawing near. They wanted to hear him. In Mark 12, 37, it says, The great throng heard him gladly. They enjoyed hearing him. They wanted to be there in the crowd listening to him. Luke 7, verse 34, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they looked at Jesus' life, and they said, look, he's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's a friend, and they're trying to insult him. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Has anyone ever accused you of being a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Now, of course, Jesus wasn't a glutton. Of course, Jesus wasn't a drunkard, but he did eat with sinners, he did drink with them, and he did love them, and so it gave them an occasion to say, okay, this is who he is. He's just a glutton and a drunkard. I've been asking myself, I don't think anybody would say that about me, that they look at Brian's life and he's a friend of the outcasts. They probably wouldn't. It's because I am not investing enough of my time and energy into people that don't know Christ, developing relationship with them. And I think that's where it starts. How do sinners feel about you? <laughs> How do lost people, do they like you? They like Jesus. They really liked him. They wanted to be with him. They liked to hear him teach. They would show up when he would teach the crowd about the kingdom of heaven. How do they feel about you? Are you more like a Pharisee or are you more like Jesus? I've got an assignment for all of you today. And I'm just going to call this assignment neighboring. And I want us to try something. I want you to think about where you live and the neighbors that live to your right and the neighbors that live to your left and the three neighbors across the street. So you've got five neighbors now. So just picture in your mind, who are those people? Three things I want you to do. Number one, I want you to learn their names. So if you don't even know what their names are, that's the place to start. Go over and introduce yourself. Tell them who you are. Find out what their names are. Number two, find out what they're interested in. What are their hobbies? What do they like to do? Okay? Pretty simple, right? And then number three... Start praying for an opportunity to serve them in some way. 
Look for what do they need? What are their needs in their life? How can I be a blessing to them? How can I serve them? How can I show them that I'm interested in them as a person? That I, I do love them with the love of Christ. So real simple, their names, their interests, and then how can you serve that person? Recently, we uh, threw a pancake breakfast and invited just the neighbors close to our house over, and we had a, an awesome time. The, we have new folks that just moved in to the left of us, and the whole family came over. Uh, to my shame, I've already forgotten all their names, except for the adults. I know them. But all the kids, there's like four kids. <laughs> but we just had a great time getting to know them. And if we would do more of this kind of thing, throw barbecues, invite people over. Or if they ever invite you, go. If they have a party for their, their, their child and they want you to come over, go. If they're serving a beer or wine, go. It's not a sin to have a, a glass of wine. It's not a sin to have a beer. If you get drunk, it's a sin. But, but go and just be part of the group and let your light shine. If there's, pray for opportunities before you go. And say, Lord, just present something that I can say today that would bring light into a dark place. Let me be a light for you in this place. And then as God enables you and gives you opportunities, start calling people to repentance. There's a better life. You don't have to live in what you're going through. Jesus can make you whole. Jesus can forgive you. Jesus can bring you into a kingdom. Jesus can grant you everlasting life. Come on with me. Let's follow the Son of God. There's a better way than where you're going. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us as your people to be like our master? And Lord, we just confess, I confess, and probably most people here would have to confess with me that we're not enough like Jesus, that we fail in many ways, that we get self-absorbed and we spend our time on ourselves and we're not that interested about the people that we work with or our neighbors. We can go months or years without making any investment of our time to try to, to love them for Christ's sake. And so I'm just asking, Lord, that you would change us and help us to become like Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the gospel medicine by which you've saved us. And Lord, help us to take it to those who are perishing. In Jesus' name, amen.